So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, for it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Good morning, Renewal, and those of you who are not currently part of our congregation but are joining us remotely, welcome to you as, as well. My name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're really glad all to be together. Even if we can't fully be in each other's presence, at least we can still worship together and open the scriptures together. We are continuing our study this morning in the book of 1 Peter, as Luke said, because of how well it fits our present situation, both here in the U.S. and also around the globe. Peter is writing to God's people. They're spread throughout the northern provinces of Asia Minor, and they're suffering. And we don't know exactly what the nature of that suffering is, but you can tell from what Peter writes that it's pretty bad. Now, when you suffer, what's happened to you? Something has come from the outside. It's invaded your world. It's impacted you in ways that you don't like, in ways that you don't want. And the normal temptation in those moments is to shrink in defensively, to try to guard yourself, to protect yourself, uh, to collapse inwardly. And Peter is pointing people in a different direction. He's pointing them outwardly beyond their suffering to this larger reality, to God and to what God's doing. And essentially he says, yes, you're suffering, but don't pull back. Don't act like this threatens anything that God's been doing. Don't act like it's caught God by surprise or that he's up in heaven wringing his hands, not fully sure what he's going to do next. Instead, be confident. God is still doing what he's always been doing, what he's planned to do for a long time. He's hard at work rescuing this world from every bit of evil. So that there is a day coming when there will be no more suffering on this earth. And part of the way that he's rescuing this world is he's using you. And so this is an opportunity for you to join in with what he's doing. Don't get distracted by the things that are going on all around you. Don't lose yourself in anxiety and worry. Don't be reactive. Instead, be proactive. 
Give yourself to what God's doing. Now that may sound strange to you and me in our present moment because so much of what our state and local and federal governments have asked us to do doesn't sound active, it sounds inactive. We've been told stay home from work, stay home from school, restrict where you go, limit how many people you're around. And so now it just feels like we're in this extended period of time of waiting. Virus in some sense has put everything on hold and the answer to most of our questions is, I, I, I don't know, <laughs> you're just gonna have to wait. So when will travel restrictions be lifted? Nobody knows. You're just gonna have to wait and see what happens. Well, when can we get together again? No one knows that either. You're gonna have to wait and see what happens. When are the kids going back to school? When can our stores and our businesses reopen? Will there be a recession? How long is it gonna take for our investments to bounce back? The answer to all of those is the same. We're modern situation, you just have to wait. Now waiting is hard. Waiting is hard in good times. It's harder when times are not good, when something has threatened normality and you, and you just wanna get back to what's normal. It's hard when it's impersonal, when the threat is outside. It's even harder when it involves you personally, when it's you and your health. When you notice that, that slight cough that you've had over the last couple days, or when you start to say, you know what, I, I feel a little warm. I, it, it's not a full-blown fever, but it doesn't feel normal either. In any other year, you probably wouldn't even notice. Okay, it's just sort of my seasonal allergies kicking in, or okay, it's a slight cold, it's a little bit of a flu. Now you start to wonder, is it something worse? And on the one hand, you don't wanna add it, another burden to our overloaded healthcare system. You don't wanna use up a test that somebody else needs or pr protective equipment for the healthcare workers. On the other hand, you don't wanna play around with your health and the health of the people around you. Now, it's really clear if the symptoms are bad or if you're in a high-risk category. If you're older than 60, if you're pregnant, the CDC says your choice is clear. Call your healthcare provider now. But what if the symptoms aren't bad? What do you do? Then you have to wait. This past Thursday, the president of the American Medical Association, Dr. Patrice Harris, made this statement. Quote, at this moment, as of Thursday, at this moment, the current guidance, and this may change, is that if you have symptoms that are similar to the cold and the flu, and these are mild symptoms to moderate symptoms, stay at home. Try to manage them with rest, hydration, and the use of Tylenol, unquote. What did Dr. Harris just say? She said, if you're not in danger, if your symptoms are mild to moderate, then take care of yourself and see what happens. She just said you have to wait. Take care of yourself, distance yourself from others, see what happens over the next couple of days. But the real question then is not, okay, what do you do? The real question is, what are you supposed to do while you're waiting? Do you obsess over every physical symptom? Do you continually monitor your temperature? Do you start to plan out what if happens scenarios in your head? Or you decide, no, it's just way too much to deal with, and you try to run from it. You try to sleep it away, drink it away, eat it away, Netflix it away. Is that really why God put you on this earth, so that you would do one of those other things, to be obsessed with yourself or, or live with your head under a pillow? You think, okay, no, that's not what it means to be faithful when you're suffering. But what does it mean? What are you supposed to focus on? What do you give yourself to while you're waiting? What does godly waiting look like in a time of suffering? And that's not just the question for our time. 
for these few short months. It's really an everyday question throughout your life. Because all that COVID-19 is doing is taking real life and compressing it down to a very fine point. See, because I know something about the future, something that will be true of you, something that will be true of me. I know with very little margin of error that 50 years from now, I will not be speaking to you, at least not from within this body. So somewhere between today and 50 years from now, I will not be here. And I know that what is true of me is also true for the majority of you. You will also not be here 50 years from now. If you're younger, then okay, let's add another 15. You can join the pile and then we'll all be in the same place together. At some point, what is true of me will be true of you. All of us will die. Some of us may dodge the COVID-19 bullet. None of us will dodge the life on earth bullet. COVID-19 does what? It produces uncertainty. You're asking questions, will I get it or won't I? Will I survive it if I do or won't I? How about the people around me? What happens to them? It produces uncertainty. Life on earth produces certainty. We're all gonna get it. At some point in time, we will all die. None of us are gonna survive this life, nor will any of the people that we care about. We are all waiting for that moment all the time. And what COVID-19 does is it takes something that we all know, but that most of us try to ignore, that certainty of death is part of the human life, and it brings that certainty into very sharp focus so that you can no longer ignore it, you can no longer avoid it. And in that sense, it's doing us a favor because it's making us ask the question, if the reality is that at some point in the next 50 years, next 100 years, if the reality is that my life will end here, that I'm waiting in some sense for that to happen, what should I be giving myself to while I wait? What's a good way to live while I'm waiting? What is honorable? What is something that I will respect at the end of my life, regardless of how near or how far that end is? What has God given me to do today before that time? And if we can answer the question then for what waiting means in this compressed focus time, then we're going to be able to live that much better when this time is passed, when we go back to normal waiting instead of compressed waiting. So if you want to use your time on this earth well while you're waiting, then you have to ask three questions, three questions that today's passage answers. If you want to live well while you're waiting, you have to ask, what is God doing while we're waiting? What is he doing throughout history? Why is he doing it? What is God doing? Secondly, how do you go about fitting into what he's doing? How do you take your place in the larger picture of what history is all about? How do you fit into what he's doing? And third, is there anything that could keep you from fitting in? What might threaten you from fitting into what God is doing. So first, what is God doing? Second, how do you fit into what he's doing? And thirdly, what would keep you from fitting in? First, what is God doing while we're waiting? Last week we saw that he's giving his people a new nature, an imperishable nature, and that imperishable nature comes with a new lifestyle. We are no longer consumed with trying to hang on to all of the things that at some point everyone eventually loses. 
And so we've been set free from worrying about things like our health and our possessions and our career and our 401ks. We have something that uh, God has given to us that nothing can ever touch. But why is God doing that? Why is he giving us that new nature? It's wonderful not to be consumed with anxiety and worry over things that can't last. But is that all? Or is there more? Is he doing that for a larger purpose? Why rescue you from a perishable world and make you part of something that never ends? It's so that he can use you to create a place, a physical location where his presence now lives. Let's look at verses four and five again. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. And we'll pause there. Do you hear what God's doing? He's building a spiritual house. A house that is going to pull together a whole variety of meanings. In the scripture, house can have three meanings on a regular basis. Sometimes when scripture talks about a house, it's just a normal dwelling place. Other times it has a more narrow sense, and it's talking actually about God's house, the place where God lives, his temple, where his presence dwells in this physical world. At other times, when scripture uses the word house, it means household, it means family. And what Peter has just done is he's taken all three of those meanings and he's brought them all together. As he says, you are being built up as a spiritual house. God is taking you and he's birthing you into his family. He's making you part of his family. You now relate to him as your father. You're now part of his family. And if you follow the metaphor, he is using you as a very special kind of building material. A place, a physical location where he now dwells. Not you alone. He does live in you personally, but nobody is big enough to, uh, for the infinitely glorious God to inhabit. It's going to take all of us together, each person uniquely fitting in with their brothers and sisters, each person absolutely essential, each person absolutely needed, so that God is creating a place where his infinity now can live among his people. That's what God is doing throughout time rescuing people out of darkness, bringing them into his wonderful light, giving them a new spiritual life that they didn't have before, and then fitting them all together so that one day they're going to be able to experience his presence in a way that they can't individually. That building is the culmination of what God has always intended to do on this earth, to live among his people. History starts way back in the Garden of Eden, where we learn that God used to come to our first ancestors and and live with them, share himself with them, share his life. He wanted to give them the best that they possibly could have. There wasn't anything better than himself. And so the source of all beauty, of all joy, of all peace, of all goodness, of all life came and shared that with them. They rejected him, ending up us in the misery of, the human, of human history, but God never gave up on that vision of living among his people, sharing his life with them. Now, if you're anything like me, you hear that and you start to think, man, that, that sounds like something I should find amazing. That should move me. And too often it doesn't. Too often I get so excited about things that have nothing to do with what God is doing. Why is that? Well, some of the reason is a failure of imagination. We don't have any real idea of what it is that God is offering to us. 
of why this is so special. So like we often do at Renault, let's think about the opposite for a moment, because if we can understand what the opposite picture would be, maybe that will make this picture a little clearer. Let's imagine um, something that we're, we're familiar with. Let's see if we could see what the COVID-19 virus is doing. I was watching a video the other day that depicts what happens in your lungs how the virus infiltrates various cells and reduces their ability to help clear debris out of your lungs, and then it kills those cells, adding to the debris, and then it multiplies itself. You think that's a charming little thing to have happening in there. That kind of infection produces nothing of any value in you. It's not something you want, certainly not something that you would want to give to anybody else. Now let's imagine a completely different world, a world with a different virus one that also entered into you and multiplied itself, but each time it did that, it made your cells better. It produced life in them. It empowered them to be the best cells that they could possibly be. That would be an infection that you would want. You would try to catch that infection. It would be something that you would hope everybody would catch. And so it's an infection that you would tell everybody about and you would post repeatedly to your social media accounts. You would pray that other people would get it. Think about what that's like, and that starts to give you a little tiny understanding of what it's like to have the Spirit of God in you, to come live inside of you, to dwell with you. Because everything that the Spirit of God touches, he makes better. He fills you with love. He fills you with joy. He fills you with peace. He fills you with all the fruit of the Spirit, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, all the things that you need right now as you are homebound with your housemates and your family. And he gives you the kind of life and the kind of health that you actually would want. If you start to think accurately about what it is that he's doing by offering to live with you, you realize this is something that I want. <laughs> this is something that I would like to have even more of. Why is that? Because having him inside of you makes you better. It makes you a better you a you that you think better of, a you that's better for other people to be around. He makes you someone who can live on this planet and wait through all the suffering without being anxious or worried, without being bored, without just sort of marking time. He makes you someone who can live here fully, joyfully, with purpose. So having him live inside of you makes you someone who's engaged in the world around you while God is finishing up this work of gathering his people, building them into a house where he will live with them. So first, if you want to use your time on this earth well, you have to ask, what is God doing? Secondly, you have to ask, how do I get in on that? <laughs> how do I fit into what he's doing? Verse 5 again. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. There's a purpose here that you're being built into this spiritual house. It's so that you'll be a, a holy priesthood that offers spiritual sacrifices. And you think, okay, that's really outside of our normal realm. We don't really understand what that's like. So you have to cast your mind back into the Old Testament. What, what did priests do? They offered sacrifices and you say, okay, I, I'm supposed to do something like that. I'm supposed to offer a spiritual sacrifice. What's a spiritual sacrifice? Now, the answer to that question is in this passage, but it's not as explicit as you'll find it in other New Testament passages. 
So what I'm going to do is I'm going to say, let's hop out of 1 Peter for a moment. We're going to go into the book of Hebrews. We're going to see it spelled out much more clearly there. And once we understand what it is we're, going, we're looking for, we'll come back to 1 Peter and see how Peter talks about it. So Hebrews chapter 13, verses 15 to 16. Through Jesus, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Okay, so what are these sacrifices, these spiritual sacrifices? They have to do with praising God, doing good and sharing what you have. Now let's go back into 1 Peter. We'll see exactly those same things there. First, verse nine, this sacrifice of praising God. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, that word there again describing who you are, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, for a purpose, that you may proclaim the excellencies. Excellencies means moral virtues, moral greatness. That you may proclaim the excellencies, his moral excellencies, of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So part of being a priest involves proclaiming how great God is to the rest of the universe. And if you don't understand how good a thing that is and how important that is, at first pass, it sounds a little dull. It sounds like, okay, that's sort of that depiction, that caricature of heaven where we're going to be floating on clouds with harps. It sounds a little dull to me, frankly. It also sounds a little odd. Think, okay, God is creating a royal priesthood to get his name out there, to run an ad campaign. It sounds like he's a little needy, like he needs to hear how great he is. It sounds a little narcissistic. That's a misunderstanding of what's taking place. C.S. Lewis wrote a fictional book called Paralandra. It's part of his space trilogy. And at the end of the book, after the climax, when evil's been eliminated, good has been restored, there's this lengthy section where the primary characters sit around and they talk about the great glories, the greater glories that God has built into the universe. How everything in the universe intertwines and, and intersects and interacts together. And as they're discussing how amazing this universe is, they keep wrapping it back around to the one who thought it up, to the one who built it, to the one who maintains it, to the one who has an intention for it and is leading it down to that ultimate goal. It is anything but dull. It is beautiful. It stretches my mind every time I read it. As they see life more clearly and intricately, at the same moment they're seeing God more wonderfully. As they enter into what he's doing by declaring who he is and how amazing he is, they grow into themselves. They become what he always intended them to be. They do that as they proclaim him to each other. It's part of what God is doing by making you his priests. You see him more clearly as you proclaim how amazing he is. And as you see him more clearly, you find yourself more at home in his world than you were before. You understand who you are, what you're supposed to be about as you see yourself in relationship to him. It's one of your sacrifices. You proclaim how great he is. A second sacrifice is that we do good to the people around us, even when they speak badly about us. Verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, 
they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation, which is a way of saying on the day that God visits us. What's he just said there? He said that the life of a Christian, the life of a royal priest, surprises people on earth. It's not what they expect. Here they are accusing you of doing evil, and here you are responding to them by caring about them, by doing good to them, by loving your neighbor. And that is so jarring to some of them that when they see your good deeds, when they see what comes out of your life when you're suffering, it ends up changing them. They wind up glorifying God when he comes to earth. And the implication here, it's not spelled out, but the implication is they've converted. They've become a believer in part because they've seen what effect Christ has had on you. And it's attractive to them. It's engaging. They want to know more. And eventually they want what you have for themselves as well. You have to do good. This is where you're going to have to push against some of that inertia of waiting a little bit. You can't do all the things that you once did. But it doesn't mean you can't do anything. You're just going to have to be creative now as you think about what good deeds need to be done. And so maybe you go online, you print out those cards that Pastor Luke was just talking about, and you pass them out to people on your street. Why? Because Jesus loved you when you needed help. And so as his priest, you now love those who need help as well. Or maybe you realize that people at this point are isolated and bored, that the novelty of being homebound has rubbed, worn, worn off at this point, and that kindness would look like what? It would look like offering connection to people. It would look like offering a distraction. And so maybe you want to invite your social media contacts to play a game online together. Or maybe start a book discussion. Or maybe you have a talent that you would like to share with other people, and so you post that hey, at such and such a time, we're all going to do this together, and people can connect. Maybe you invite people to one of the trivia nights uh, that we've been having here at church. You use that as an outreach, and you say, our church loves people. And part of that is because we've been loved. Here's a way that we can relieve some of the suffering, the isolation that you're feeling right now. Or maybe you would think that, you know, there's that single mom in the neighborhood. And at this point, she could probably really, really use a break. And so maybe you're like a friend of mine who I was talking with earlier. He went to one of the single moms in his neighborhood, and he offered to watch her kids play outside a little while, keeping social distance, and then spent time talking with the kids about what this has been like with, for them, not being in school. And what is he doing there? He's caring about the kids. He's giving her a break. He's doing good and loving his neighbor. Or maybe like one lady I heard from, you realize this is a time where it's actually easier to invite people to come to church. They don't have to go anywhere. They don't have to overcome any hurdles. They're not wondering about whether or not they're wearing the right kind of clothes or, or who might talk to them and are they going to be put in an awkward position. You invite them to join the live stream on Sunday mornings. Or you think, you know what, that resource that we posted uh, there at, at church on the website, that, that was really helpful to me. And here's this person that I've been thinking about. They're anxious, they're worried, they're, they're bored. Um, I, I'm going to take that link and I'm going to forward that to them and say, this was helpful to me, maybe it can be helpful to you. If you think about it, there are lots of ways to do good right now. They're only limited by your imagination. Ways that say, here is kindness. God has brought me into the light. I want you to experience personally what that feels like. So first, if you want to use your time on this earth well while you're waiting, you have to ask, what is God doing? 
Secondly, you have to ask, how do I fit in? Third, you have to ask, is there something that would keep me from fitting in? And Peter says, yes, there is, verse 11. And he urges you, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Now that word passion there is the same Greek word that we talked about last week, the Greek word epithumia, that talks about these turbocharged desires that are at the most basic level of you as a person. Desires that govern what you pursue in life, they, just, they govern how you respond to things in life. They're the things that are beneath everything that you are as a human being. And so they inform your emotions, they inform what you're thinking, they inform what you say and what you do. And when Peter takes and combines them with the word flesh, he's saying these are not good passions, these are bad ones. Because the word flesh there is not a word for sex or sexuality, it's not a word for physical. Instead, he is using it as a contrast to spiritual. So verse five talks about how God is building a spiritual house and a priesthood that offers spiritual sacrifices. Flesh then, these passions of the flesh, are desires that are pointed away from what God is doing. And so these are the times where I value something more than him or more than what he's doing and what he's saying. Something when I a time when I elevate something above him in importance. Any time that I think I have to have something in order for life to be okay. Now you notice two things about these passions. Number one, they are deadly. They wage war against your soul. They are trying to weaken you at your most vital part, the most vital part of who you are. They are deadly, number one. Number two, they come from inside of you, not from outside. And so the biggest problems of living, the biggest reason that I will not be able to enter into what God is doing has nothing to do with what's taking place around me. It has everything to do with what takes place inside of me. Because nothing that I encounter outside of me can ruin my soul's health. All those external things that I find so frustrating right now, being cooped up in the house, working around other people who are tired of being cooped up in the house, waiting with no end in sight, at best, what can any of those things do? At best, they can interrupt my present happiness. But none of those things can ultimately get inside and threaten my soul. They have no power to do anything of lasting damage. But my response to all of those external things can damage my soul. My response that's driven by these war-waging passions, my demand to not be inconvenienced by anyone else, my demand to not hear complaining, to not hear grumbling, my demand to be left alone and to be able to get as many things done as I want to do, my willingness to put my passions above loving my, the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and my neighbor as myself, that's what can shrivel me up internally. I'm not responsible for what I face in life. I am responsible for how I respond. In that sense, all the difficult, of all the difficult things that I have to face today, the very worst and the hardest thing that I will have to contend with is me. That's the hard news. The good news behind that grim reality is that I don't have to give in to those passions if I have a new nature. I don't have to give in to everything that I feel. I can fight them. My desires are not destiny. I can abstain from them. And this is where my biggest fight is every day in order to join God in what he's doing on this planet. And this is exactly the reason why Jesus came. 
Because without him, those desires would keep me far from God, and I would not be able to be part of his people. I would not be able to enjoy him or his presence. See, in order for God to live with you, you have to be absolutely perfect, holy. Anything less just is not as good as he is. It's not as delightful. It's not as elegant. It's not as beautiful. It's not as praiseworthy. And if it's not morally as good as he is, it's not a suitable building material for his presence. That's why he keeps talking about how his people need to be holy. Verse 5, they need to be a holy priesthood. Verse 9, they need to be a holy nation. But you think, if that's the standard, holiness, absolute perfection, no one's holy enough for God. No one deserves him. Because at some time or other, every one of us has given into these passions for something other than him. We've all decided at different times that our ideas of what we need are better than his ideas of what we need. And so we've disqualified ourselves from being in his presence because of what's inside of us. And so you start to wonder, well, if that's the case, how can he say now that we are his people, that he lives among us, that we can now serve him as priests? It's because verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now that's a sentence that takes you back into the Old Testament. It's a reference back to the Old Testament book written by a man named Hosea. God told Hosea to marry a woman who would be unfaithful to him. And Hosea was a living parable of what God's life was like living with his unfaithful people. God gave himself completely to the Jewish nation and they gave themselves completely to other gods, other things that they valued more than him. And God wanted them to understand something about themselves. He wanted them to understand that they were not holy and that their unholiness had an impact on his relationship with them. And so during the course of Hosea's marriage, his wife slept around. She kept getting pregnant with kids that were not Hosea's. And God told Hosea to give them specific names that reflected Hosea's reality, but also that reflected God's reality. And so he named one, No Mercy, because God said he would no longer show mercy to Israel, that he would not forgive them for how they had lived with him. Hosea's wife had another child, and God told Hosea, Call his name, not my people. He said, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Sounds utterly final. You are not my people. Yes, I chose you, but I chose you to be holy. I chose you to be set apart, to keep yourselves to me only, and you chose something different. You chose not to do that, and therefore I will not show mercy to you. You are no mercy. You are not my people. Makes complete sense. It's reasonable. They brought it on themselves. But then God does something surprising. He ends the parable by saying that he will rescue his people, that he'll pursue them and change them so that they'll be faithful to him, that they will no longer value things above him. He makes an amazing promise to them in chapter 2, verse 23. He says, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. 
inside of God is a longing to show mercy, to be merciful, transforming kind of mercy that changes people. It's amazing. It's something that you could not have hoped for. But it raises a problem, a question. How can God simultaneously value holiness and mercy? How can both of these be part of his excellencies? How can both of these be part of his moral greatness? How can he take people who are unholy, people who have given into their war-waging passions, how can he make them his people without compromising himself? How can he do that for them? How can he do that for you? You see the dilemma? If he simply chooses to overlook people's failings, if he pretends it's not a big deal because he wants to give mercy, then he's going to be less good. If he accepts our unholiness, he's no longer holy because holiness does not make room for sin by definition. But if he maintains his standard of holiness, no human being will ever live up to it and he'll be less merciful. How can he have both holiness and mercy? How can they both be fully expressed in him? It's a tension not just here, it's a tension throughout scripture. God created his people to know him, to find their satisfaction in him. He longs to live among his people, to give himself to them, but they aren't holy. They choose things that have nothing to do with him. How can he show them mercy and be true to himself? How can he be holy and merciful at the same time? Now my fear is that for some of this, it's just hard for us to wrap our minds around this because very frankly, we tend to be a little squishy on holiness. We don't value it. We don't see how important it is and how glorious it is. It's hard for us to get on board with this. We kind of wonder, well, why can't God just let some things go? What's the big deal? Let's try one more parable this morning from the virus. How would you think about someone who a couple weeks ago decided that they didn't care about the travel restrictions? They went to Italy for spring break, hung out there for a while. They came back through Florida and went to the beach for a week. They flew up to New York City. They wandered around for several days, and then finally they stopped to come see you and the aging parents that live with you. And when they land on your doorstep, they've got all the symptoms of the virus, and they want to come in. They want to be part of your people. They're not holy. They're infected. Their infection is going to hurt them. It's going to wage war against them inside. It's also going to reach out. It's going to hurt anybody around them. Let's make the problem a little more difficult. They're also your fiance. You like them. They're special to you. They've made some really bad choices. They did it to themselves. They were foolish. They wanted to enjoy themselves. They wanted to do what they wanted to do more than they wanted to do what was right. They are unholy but you still love them. They're still special to you. Now you're torn. If you let them near you, you will compromise your own health, your own holiness. But if you keep your standard of health, your standards of holiness, you'll compromise your desire to be with them. They've created a problem in your relationship with them. They might even be sorry for what they've done. That does not erase the problem. The problem is still there. The only solution is for them to get rid of the virus. And that's what Jesus does for you. 
virus of sin is far worse than any physical pathogen, far more dangerous, far more destructive. It ruins spiritual health. It destroys relationships far quicker than anything else on this earth. And Jesus came to take it away from you so that you could be part of God's people, so that you could live in his presence. But in order to do that, he had to change places with you. He had to be rejected by God. He had to hear God say to him, you are not my people, and I am not your God. Jesus deserved to live in God's presence forever. He never once sinned, never once gave in to any passion, any desire to value anything above God. He lived a holy life. He didn't need mercy. He earned the right to be God's people. And yet for your sake, he became not my people. That's what it means when we say that he was forsaken by God on the cross. On the cross, he took your unfaithfulness that kept you from God, and he gave you his holiness so that you could live in God's presence forever. He became not my people so that God would say to you, you are my people. He became no mercy so that God would show mercy to you. Now you have been shown mercy. Now you are the people of God. Get hold of that this morning. Get hold of that and no one will be able to shut you up. That's a God whose excellencies are worth declaring. It's a God whose goodness is worth stepping outside and sharing with other people. Get hold of that, you'll be active now. You'll be active throughout the rest of your life while you wait to be with him fully forever. Let's pray. Holy Father, who loves to show mercy, we could not enjoy that if it had not been for your Son. Thank you for sending him. Holy Spirit, thank you for your presence that now lives inside of us, that empowers us to reach back out to the Father and say thank you. Lord, empower us now to declare your excellencies, to proclaim your great worth. In Jesus' name.